This is Our American Stories, and it's time for one of our favorite segments. We love music here on the show. And it's the story of a song, and we've done a bunch of great ones. Jesus Takes the Wheel, There Goes My Life, Another Brick in the Wall, Give Me Shelter, on and on. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and listen to all of them when you're taking a long ride. You'll love it. A lot of it from the songwriters themselves. Light My Fire, The Exegesis by Ray Manzarek, the keyboard player. It's just amazing. There are songs that sound like they've been around forever. Songs that were not written as much as transcribed. Transcribed for the ages. The song we're about to talk about, well, it's one of those songs. It's by country legend Vince Gill. And it's Go Rest High on That Mountain. For the longest time, I just thought it was part of the American songbook. One of those songs that was always just there, like House of the Rising Sun. One of the songs that when you go to find who wrote it, well, it had no author. I want to play a clip because when we're telling the story of the song, we like to hear from the writer himself and the source of the inspiration of this song that felt like it's been around forever. Here's Vince Gill talking about it. I've had bigger hits and songs that have sold more and, and all of those, uh, all those things, but that will be the one song, hands down, that, that will that will identify me, and I couldn't be prouder. You know, if that were to wind up in a hymnal someday, it would yeah. just be the sweetest thing yeah. in the world, you know, that something I did later in life was would correlate with the very first thing that I ever heard was something out of a hymnal. And I, I know that song is, is powerful. Um, I, I did, it, it had no intention of being any of that. You know, all it was intended for was for me to grieve my brother's death and honor him and, and, and celebrate what I thought was in store for him and and what really didn't even plan to record it. And Tony Brown said, you have to record this song. I said, well, okay, if you want to. And 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 then they told me they were going to put it as a single. And I said, well, you guys have lost your minds. <laughs> and I couldn't have been more wrong. But um, I, I, I really could not be prouder that that I was lucky enough to, to, to strike a chord with people that, that they want to go to that song um, in their gravest times and in their most painful and hurtful and, and sad times that they go to that song to find comfort. Maya Angelou um, got in touch with me and told me that that song um, was an amazing um, healing process for her when she lost her brother. Sure. I feel pretty blessed and lucky and all those things to have gotten to write that one. And we're all blessed and lucky he did. And you know, it was interesting as we were listening to that clip, Greg Hengler pointed out to us that he doesn't just wait for folks to die to celebrate this song and to listen to this song. In fact, he listens to it every week, he told us. And then in the end, it inspires him as it relates to how to live. There was one particular lyric I'm going to quote to you, and then we're going to play the song in its entirety, as we always do with the story of the song. And it's the chorus. Go rest high on that mountain. Son, when your work on earth is done, go to heaven a-shoutin'. Love for the Father and the Son. And with that, for both folks who listen to it uh, when people have died, and for folks like Greg who listen to it to inspire them, Let's take a listen to Vince Gill's song. I know your life 
peace the devil We're no stranger to the rain So go rest high on that mountain The sun you work on earth is done Go to Gathered round your grave to breathe Wish I could see angels' faces When they hear your sweet voice And you're listening, by the way, to Ricky Skaggs and Patty Loveless. Gil's older brother Bob died of a heart attack in 1993. This song won Vince Gill CMA Song of the Year Award in 1996 and two Grammys. This is Our American Stories, the story of a song. This is Our American Stories, where we love to bring you stories from every part of this great country. North, south, east, west, big cities, little towns, and everything in between. And today we bring you a story from a place 
called Midland, Texas, which got its name for being midway between two bigger places, Fort Worth and El Paso. And if Midland is known for anything, it's for the tremendous oil and gas resources that power our nation. And one of the leading energy entrepreneurs there is a guy by the name of Tim Dunn, who's been married to his wife, Terry, for over 40 years. And today brings us a story from his book, Yellow Balloons. I'm in that phase of having grandkids. We have our number 18 on the way now. That came from six children who are now all married. And we had six kids in nine years. And Mary Catherine, our oldest daughter, her uh, husband, Tim, and she moved to town. So Mary Catherine and Tim moved in with us. And they had two daughters, Wheatley, who was four at the time, and Mariah, who was about one. So they lived with us while they were looking for a house. Then they found a house, but it was a fixer-upper. So they were going through fixing it up. So they ended up living with us for nine months. And during that time, of course, we got to see Mariah and Wheatley every day. And Mariah went from being a rug rat to a curtain climber to a toddler. She was a real joy as a kid. When there was a party of some kind, she would lap surf. She would go from lap to lap based on whatever food was in front of <laughs> whoever had the best goodies. That's whose lap she wanted to be in. Obviously, you're always attached to your grandkids, but this was more like our kid. Mariah had some fever-induced seizures, which means she'd get a low-grade fever and didn't have a seizure. So we got six kids, and five of them are in the oil business with us. But David was beat to his own drum. He's almost just like me, which means we butted heads all the way growing up. So um, I remember when as a junior, he was like, you know, you're controlling me. You don't give me any freedom. And I said, here's what freedom is. You pay the rent. You pay the car payment. You pay your own insurance. And you will be free in 18 months. And I can't wait. And I saw his eyes get as big as saucers. We never had any more problems. (laughs) (laughs) So David went and he got an engineering degree. And so his brother's really leaning on him to come back to us. We needed help really bad. But he decided he's going to be a musician. And he said, I just don't want to look back and wonder what I could have done. So he gave himself two years. And that was about 10 years ago now. One of his songs just won an award for a song of the year in Christian music called I Want to Go Back. When I was a kid, I was sure I could run across the ocean. Now I was going to be an astronaut. It was you and it was me. I had everything I needed. Faith could even move a mountain top. And then I grew up and then I got older. And my life got tough and we grew apart. So David is in Nashville and he's he's the only one that's not with us. And he had really not been to Midland for about nine months. But he had a an event that he was booked for, so he was in town, and he had a song on the radio at that time, his first song to play on the radio called Today is Beautiful, and it's a song about perspective, and here's where the song came from. It came from our family, all being at Disneyland. Our, our family likes to take big trips together, 
we discovered that if we'll pay, everybody comes. <laughs> so we were at Disneyland or Disney World, and Lee's kids at the time were about four and two, named Brady and Addie. So Addie was pushing the empty stroller, and Brady wanted to push that stroller, and Addie wouldn't let him. And so Brady just had a complete meltdown. There was a lot of laughing about that. Here we are at Disneyland, the happiest place on earth. Got all these rides around you, and here's this kid melting down because I can't push a stroller, something you can do anywhere on earth. And David in particular thought, you know, we kind of do that as humans. We're, we're in a Disneyland, really. The amazing opportunities we have in life, and we're melting down because of the bumper sticker on the car in front of us. But we kind of do this to ourselves. So if we can lift your eyes and see it in a different light, you'll realize everything is beautiful. That's the core of the song. So he came to town, and Mariah and particularly really loved this song. And she couldn't speak well enough to sing the whole thing, but the chorus goes something like... That's how it goes. So she would say, eyes, light, sky. She would just do that one tag word on the end. And she called him Uncle Days because she couldn't date Dave. So it was a Days. So every time the song came on the radio, she would, Uncle Days, and she would sing along. So Uncle Dave was a big favorite. And, of course, he's the only out-of-town uncle, so he's a big favorite. So he came to town. So we went over to Becky's house. Mary Catherine was at her sister's house with Mariah. And... Mary Catherine was holding Mariah, and David said, Hey, Mariah. And Mariah was just not feeling like up to date. She had a really light grape fever. And so she just didn't feel too good. So we said, Oh, okay. Well, you know, she will go let her take a nap, and, and then we'll see her later. So I took Dave, and we had a new office building at the time, and I took him to go on a tour of the office. And I got a call from Terry that was, uh, you know, you got to come home right now. Mariah's not responsive. So we flipped around and went home and uh, realized that the ambulance we had passed was Mariah going to the hospital. And Terry had been outside going for a walk. And Mary Catherine was kind of keeping an eye on Mariah because these fever-induced seizures. So she went in, looked, and Mariah was blue. So she screamed. Terry had just gotten back. She went in, immediately did CPR. They called the EMTs. They were there in five minutes. So really... They caught it in plenty of time. They got her color back. But we learned later that about 90% of the time with the little kids, they can't start their hearts. And that was it. They just couldn't restart her heart. So she's in a nap. She was perfectly fine. And she just died. So here we all are. And... You know, you have this immense tragedy. I knew that when couples lose kids, that the divorce rate's pretty high. So I immediately called our pastor and said, hey, we need help. uh, Because I I don't want to see our family break up or see people, you know, families within our family break up. And he said, well, we're just bringing in this program called Grief Share, which I recommend. It helped our family immensely. But here's the bottom line. If you grieve together, 
and you understand the way other people want to grieve and you grieve with them the way they want to grieve. You hurt more faster, but the event will bring you together. But the human tendency is to not want to have pain. So when the pain comes and it's your day to grieve, but not the other person's day, what tends to happen is the other person will withdraw because they don't want to feel that pain that day. So you get a little further apart. And then tomorrow it's their grief and you're okay that day. So you withdraw and people just drift apart because they wouldn't grieve together. And this is the way I personalized it. I'm an oil and gas investor, right? I understand investment. If you invest in other people's pain and grieve with them the way they want to grieve, you're investing in what's left, which is the relationships you still have. So what that looked like for me is every time, for, I mean, for months after, I, every time I saw somebody, they wanted to talk about Mariah's death. And, and they wanted to grieve with me. You know, it, it's a grief for them too. Now, from my standpoint, I didn't really want to grieve anymore. You know, I grieved enough. But you know what? Because of that perspective that my pastor gave us, I was able to say, I want to grieve with this person because I'm investing in this relationship. This is what remains. And when we continue, more of the story of Tim Dunn, Mariah, and so much more about life and living from this terrific American voice. Tim Dunn's story, his family's story, here on Our American Stories. To hear more stories like this, follow us on Facebook and go to our website at ouramericannetwork.org to sign up for our newsletter so that we can send you our best stories every week. More of Our American Stories after the break. is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Tim Dunn. The book is Yellow Balloons, and it's about, well, it's about a loss, but it's also about how to live a life. And when we last left off, we were hearing about grief, and my goodness, what good good advice for anybody who is going through such a thing right now, a real tragic loss in the family, and how to deal with it with other people. But now we continue with the story of Tim Dunn's family and yellow balloons, because, well, what I loved about this book is that it wasn't really about grief. It was about how to live a good life. What the book is really about is not grief, per se. It's how to choose a perspective. Because when something tragic like that happens to you, you're forced to choose a perspective. You're forced to think, well, how am I supposed to look at this? But really, every day, all day long, 
we're choosing a perspective. Most of the time, we're not even aware we're doing it. And if we are aware, we're not thinking to ourselves, well, what is the correct perspective? What's true? And, and the book mainly is about the power, the immense power, the overwhelming power to choose how we look at things. There's only three things we get to choose as humans. We get to choose who we trust, what we do, and how we look at things, our perspective, the perspective we choose. That's it. Now, we tend to try to control other people. We can influence other people. We can't control it. We can't make choices for other people. We try to control the weather. We get mad at the weather. We try to control traffic lights. We try to control all kinds of things. Our sports teams. Here's my worst one. I try to control basketball officials. It's futile. Let me tell you, it doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work, and it makes me unhappy, and I lose. And I've done it ever since I was a kid. I was a bad player. I would think about the refs instead of thinking about the game. It's counterproductive, okay? So really, the question is, what's, what's true about what's going on? And what our pastor helped us do then is choose a true perspective. But really, all day long, every day, we should be thinking to ourselves, what's the true perspective? In order to choose a true perspective, we have to decide, well, what do I believe in? And that's going to shape what we choose to do. And if we do that well, if we do that well, then we will have a great life, no matter what circumstances are, a great life that will go on forever. It, it, it changes eternity when we do that well. If we don't do that well, it's self-induced destruction and it's misery. In the valley is really the only time you generally you're aware of your circumstances, <laughs> right? Because the, the circumstances make you be aware. And the valley is when difficulty comes, uh, disappointment. Your expectations are shattered. And I call it a Job-like experience after the biblical book of Job. But the valleys are the times really usually when growth is most accessible because the circumstances force you to reflect and to decide, do I want to do something different from what I'm used to doing? But most of our life is lived on the plains, everyday routines, and we tend to not value those and not think of them as anything special. We tend to think of the valleys as times we want to avoid and the mountaintops, like when, when things are great, when you had some success or achievement that you wanted to have that that's the desirable place and the plains don't really matter. But really, the plains is where most of life is lived. Uh, the word routine means is the derivative of a Latin root that means well-traveled. You know, it's, it's a, where our habits are. And that's really where most of life's opportunity exists. And I, I, had, a, I had a very tangible example of this that came to me through Mariah. She died on a Friday, and the Wednesday before she died, which was, she was perfectly fine until she died in this nap. You know? And so Wednesday before she came, she's again, she's living with us. And she, she, I, was, I was in the house by myself with her for some reason, and she came over to me and said, Tramping, tramping. And I said, you saying trampoline? Yeah. So, well, do you want me to go out and bounce you on the trampoline? Yeah. So, Okay. And so I went over and I opened the door and she goes, 
toddling out kind of, you know, about a quarter out of balance go popping out there. And so I bounced her on the trampoline for a while and she giggled and then our trampoline's built into the ground so we can kind of childproof it. <clears throat> so it's a, there's a hole underneath it. So she started getting under that hole and playing peekaboo with me. And every time she would pop up, she'd, you know, belly laugh. Oh, we might have done that for 20 minutes or something. It wasn't, it was just an everyday event. And, you know, and it's easy to say no to kids. It's, it's not usually something, but I always try to say yes, you know. Not long after, you know, my, uh, uh, one of my four-year-olds asked me to play Hungry, Hungry Hippo. Really what I thought inside was, I don't want to play Hungry, Hungry Hippo. But I said, sure, I'll go play Hungry, Hungry Hippo. So, you know, it was an everyday event. Well, it's really my last memory of Mariah. Okay, so you think, well, it was really special. Was it? Is it? Was it special? Yes, it actually was. But was it different than every other opportunity? No. Every opportunity you have to interact with another human, every opportunity you have, it's all special. If you can choose your perspective that way, then really all of life is this unbelievable, wonderful uh, adventure. Now, the Bible says uh, life is like a wisp of vapor. That's a comparative thing. Compared to how long we're going to exist, the life on this earth is not going to last very long. But it's the only time we'll get the opportunity to live where God's presence is veiled from us to enough extent where we can live by faith and make choices without any compulsion. You know, when you see something so clearly, you, you don't really have a choice, right? But now things are kind of murky and you have to really think, you know, what's true? What perspective am I going to choose? So this life, although it's short, it's shaping who we become forevermore. And and that part of it's not, not we can't ever, that's not repeatable. This is a one-shot deal. And if you look at those everyday routines like that, well, it puts a whole new spin on it. And then you have the mountaintops when things are, man, everything's wonderful, man. This is just what I want to have. But, you know, mountaintops are the most dangerous. First of all, if you become, let's say, extraordinarily wealthy, are wealthy people happier than everybody else? Is that what the statistics tell us? No, no. It, they're more fearful, typically, right? Because you're holding on. I got to stay up on this mountaintop. You know, I got to be. Well, you know, the mountaintops are a place where you can forget what reality is. You can kind of get the illusion that you do control things because you can kind of buy everything you want, right? But. You know, all trains just terrain. If if you learn to look at it as, oh, you know, here I am. So now, how do I look at it? What's true? Who do I trust? What do I do? Now you're living out of your values, and you're going to have success no matter what. And that was Tim Dunn. The book is Yellow Balloons. And my goodness, we love bringing ordinary stories from ordinary Americans to you, and particularly wisdom, which is a hard thing to come by these days. And there's a lot of wisdom in what Tim Dunn says, and whether you're a Christian, whether you're not, the values, the principles that he's talking about, my goodness, we all have something to learn from Tim. Again, his book is Yellow Balloons. You can go to timdunn.org, and that's Tim, D-U-N-N.org. Tim Dunn's story, his granddaughter Mariah's story, what a loss, but how to deal with grief, and that's everyone's story, because it's coming around to everybody sooner or later. All of that, all of those stories here on Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories. And now we bring you the story of an American artist whose fuzzy afro and calming voice grace TV sets not only from coast to coast, but around the world from Muncie, Indiana. Here's Jesse Edwards with our look into the life of Bob Ross. If you mention the name Bob Ross around a baby boomer, they're likely to have fond memories growing up listening to his soothing voice while watching his educational painting show. Despite the fact that he died over 20 years ago, if you mention Bob Ross to a teenager, they're likely to be just as knowledgeable. Then there's everybody else in between who doesn't know Bob Ross because you're either not old enough to remember him the first time around or young enough to know about his recent viral comeback. Hello, I'm Bob Ross, and I'd like to welcome you to the 21st Joy of Painting series. If this is your first time with us, let me extend a personal invitation for you to drag out your little paint brushes and some paints and, and paint along with us each show. And who hasn't sat around on a lazy weekend afternoon and watched the great Bob Ross do his thing on public television? Or just, just drag up the old easy chair and enjoy a relaxing half hour as we play some of nature's masterpieces on canvas. The mild-mannered, soft-spoken painter had a special ability to put his viewers into a trance-like state as we watched him paint his happy little trees and his... Beautiful landscapes. Now then, <clears throat> let's decide. Maybe there's a happy tree, evergreen tree. He lives right there. Start with just touching the canvas. Use just the corner of the brush, just the corner, and begin pushing, making the bristles bend slightly downward. See there? Look at that. Isn't that a nice little tree? And he lives right here in this brush. All you have to do is sort of push him out. Bob Ross created and starred in The Joy of Painting on PBS, where he taught viewers how to paint like he did using the wet-on-wet technique. His process involved painting his entire canvas in white before he laid down the other oil paints. While some stuffy, classically trained artists would say this is cheating, it didn't matter to Bob or anyone in his audience for that matter. We'll go right up to the top of the canvas, and we'll start. We'll just do some little X's, little crisscross strokes, and we'll work all the way across the top. Now the color is continually mixing with the liquid white and it creates all those beautiful variations that we want. Let me put a little more color on the brush here. And although Ross died of lymphoma at age 52 in 1995 on the 4th of July, he's just as famous now, if not more so, than he was at the peak of his career. There we go. Let's start at the top and work down. And that way, our sky will get progressively lighter toward the horizon. And that's exactly what we're looking for. In a landscape, you want things to get lighter toward the horizon and darker as they can come away from the horizon. His videos have millions of views on YouTube and has over 600,000 followers on Twitch where PBS regularly marathons episodes of The Joy of Painting. That effect happens automatically. You really don't have to worry about it. It, it just happens. And that truly is the joy of painting. There. His soothing voice continues to calm people. And his endless supply of inspirational quotes like, There are no mistakes, only happy accidents are more relevant than ever. And see what happens. As you paint, you'll see all kind of things happening on your canvas. And very soon you learn to use all these beautiful little things that happen. We don't, we don't make mistakes. We have happy accidents. One of the first things people noticed about Bob Ross was his trademark afro. But it might surprise some fans to learn that his hair was naturally straight. He chose to get a perm because he thought he would save money by not having to get haircuts. Yet, Ross later regretted the lush curly locks and wanted to change his hair back to its natural state. 
But by that point, his company had already included Ross's iconic fro for the company logo, and there was no going back. Give him a shake. <laughs> and just beat the devil out of him. Sometimes those brushes get away and they go, soon, clean the other side of the room. That's when you find out who your friends are. Ross was born in Daytona Beach, Florida, and dropped out of his freshman year of high school to work on construction with his father. In 1961, then-18-year-old Ross enlisted in the Air Force and was put into service as a medical records technician. He eventually rose to the rank of Master Sergeant and served as the first sergeant of the U.S. Air Force Clinic at Ellison Air Force Base in Alaska. I spent half my life in the military, and there I had to, I had to live in somebody else's world all the time. And painting offered me freedom. I'd come home after all day of playing soldier, and I'd paint a picture and I could paint the kind of world that I wanted. It was clean, it was sparkling, shiny, beautiful, no pollution, nobody nobody upset. Everybody was happy in this world. That may be how I made it through 20 years of military. There we go. Because I could find freedom on this canvas. There is absolute freedom here. And I think we're all looking for freedom. His time in Alaska undoubtedly influenced his later work. It was in Alaska where he saw snow and mountains for the first time, both of which were heavily featured in his paintings. If you've never been to Alaska, you're to go see it. It's almost unreal. I was born and raised in Florida. and was, <laughs> I was almost 20 years old before I ever saw snow. And my favorite uncle, Uncle Sam, he sent me up there in January thought that would be funny. <laughs> it was funny. I, uh, I got off the plane. The first thing I did was stepped on the ice and fell on my bottom because I didn't know how to walk on ice. In Alaska, they have ice fog. And ice fog occurs normally when it's about 30 below or colder. And it covers everything, everything with frost. It is so beautiful. Trees look like they're in full foliage. So beautiful, and the light plays through it, and these, all these little ice-covered, frosty things, they act like prisms, and they break up the light, and you see all colors in the trees. In the dead of winter, you can see just, oh, you have to go see it. I can't, can't explain it all to you. So pretty. It's hard to believe that anyone could watch this maestro at his easel and not be tempted to pick up a paintbrush. But the truth is, most of Ross's audience didn't even paint. So why do people watch? Some people just tune in for Ross's welcoming persona and positive musings about life. Others tuned in because it helped lull them to sleep, a fact that Ross was well aware of. He didn't mind. That's the name of the game. It's enjoying. You really ought to enjoy what you do in life. If you do, then you'll do a good job. And I certainly enjoy what I'm doing. I spend half my life doing somebody else's thing. Painting should make you happy. If it does nothing else, it should make you happy. And if it doesn't make you happy, you're doing the wrong thing. Because it's fun. And if you can do things all of your life that make you happy, needless to say, you're going to be a happy person. And you know, when you, when you buy your first tube of paint, you get an artist's license. And that license says you can do anything that makes you happy. 
he tirelessly churned out three copies of every painting that appeared on The Joy of Painting. He kept the first painting off-screen and used it as a reference as he worked on the copy that appeared on the show. The final painting was completed after the episode was shot. A photographer would take pictures of these third final copies, and the images would appear in Ross's how-to books. I want to get you to try being creative on canvas, just to take your time and, and sit down and have nothing in mind when you start. Just have a good feeling and be happy and, and in love with life and your world and, and sit down and begin playing. And if you feel good about yourself and the world, it'll show in your painting and all these little things will happen. Bob Ross generously filmed 31 seasons of The Joy of Painting, but PBS didn't pay the artistic genius for a single episode. Instead, Ross used the show to market his brand. He made most of his money from his company, Bob Ross Inc., selling art supplies and instructional guides. The company also offered painting classes taught by artists trained in Ross's singular methods. If you happen to get some of it down in here, who cares? We'll end up turning that into reflections. We don't make mistakes. We have happy accidents. Just don't worry about it. Learn how to use what happens. In addition to being the sleep-inducing master that had the same effect on the brain as Valium, Ross was an avid animal lover. Peapod the squirrel could be found chilling in Ross's shirt pocket as he painted, and sometimes Ross would take a break from painting and bottle feed the squirrel for his audience. And this is how hard it is to get a little squirrel to eat. That's all there is to it. Aren't they the most precious little characters you've ever seen? This is surreal television. Yeah. You could feed them ten times a day, and they'll always be just about this hungry. Hey, you know, I have to go to work. Yeah, I have to go to work. Okay? All right. I'm going to set him right over here and let him finish lunch. And since he created those three paintings for each episode of The Joy of Painting, he ended up with thousands of works over the course of his life. Somewhere around 30,000 paintings. And he was practically drowning in fan letters. His popularity and ambient-like side effects on viewers caused them to send him up to 200 letters every day. And on several occasions, when a regular fan would stop writing in, Bob Ross would actually call that fan just to see if they were okay. So what happened to all those masterpieces that Bob Ross painstakingly created? He donated them all to public television stations across the country so they could auction them off and keep the money. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Hey, now we can wash the old brush. And if you've painted with me before, you know this is the fun part of this whole technique. We wash our brushes with odorless thinner, shake them off, <laughs> and just beat the devil out of them. And that's where you take all your hostilities and frustrations. And it's a lot of fun. <laughs> there we go. Just have to splash the cameraman one time so he, he doesn't feel neglected. This is Our American Stories. By the way, nothing makes me happier than seeing my wife and my little girl, 13 years old, in front of the smart TV, painting together to whom... To old Bob Ross videos. Bob Ross's story here on Our American Stories. Great job, as always, by Jesse. This is Our American Stories, and we love stories of seemingly ordinary Americans 
doing utterly extraordinary things. And this is exactly what Ed Kondrat from Michigan did, driving 1,200 miles on no sleep into the danger zone of Hurricane Irma to evacuate his aunt. Let's hear a little from Ed about his aunt. My Aunt Mary is a very self-sufficient woman at 99 years old. I mean, yeah, she does have her senior moments, but all in all, she's been pretty independent for... My, my Uncle Paul died in ninth or 2000, so she's been around her own for 17 years. She lives in a, uh, her home in Arcadia, Florida. Uh, she drove a car up until she was 95, and the only reason she quit driving was the fact that she told me, it's not that I can't drive, Edward. She said, it's just the fact that if I ever did get an accident, they're going to blame the old lady, and I don't want that to happen. So uh, <laughs> that's how she gave up driving. In 2017, Ed and his Aunt Mary both saw Hurricane Irma closing in on Florida, and Ed decided that he couldn't stay in Michigan while his Aunt Mary was in the path of a massive hurricane. You know, I've been watching the hurricane a little bit, and I was kind of afraid, but I called her, and she goes, I was just trying to call you. And she said that I'm really worried about Hurricane Irma. And I said, well, Aunt Mary, I said, uh, I am also. I said, it's supposedly going to be a Category 5, which, as we well know, it's absolutely devastating. So I said, it's Wednesday today. I said, I'm going to get in the car tomorrow after work, and I'm coming down to pick you up. And she kind of hemmed and hawed. She said, you really want to do that? And I said, absolutely, I'm going to do it, because I'm telling you, you're not going to survive this thing if it's, if it's a direct hit. And at the time, uh, we really didn't know where it was going. They had originally said that it was going to... Uh, hit Miami first and then kind of go up the east, but for some reason it took the west coast and it was Naples was going to be a direct hit and she lives in Arcadia, which is like it needed to be done. So I got off of work, I, I came home real quick, took a quick shower. My wife had already gone to bed, so I just jumped in the car. I told my son I'm leaving. I went up to the local, uh, uh, we have a Meyer store here, which is open 24 hours, so I went in there, I bought six five-gallon gas cans because I knew there was going to be a gas shortage. So I filled those up, put them in the car, bought a case of water, and off I went. So I drove 20 hours straight to pick her up to get her the heck out of Dodge, so to speak. And as I got to the Florida line, I began to get extremely worried. Uh, it was bumper to bumper for close to 50 to 75 miles as I headed into Florida, and I thought to myself, how on earth are we ever going to get out of here? So I was having a little bit of an anxiety attack as I went down, because <laughs> I was really I was not only concerned for her, but I'm concerned for myself also, because I have a family that I need to help support. And So I finally got there. It was about 10 o'clock at night. She had packed a few things, uh, you know, just basic stuff that, just to get her through. She did take some jewelry that she was concerned of and basically the shirt on her back and something to sleep in. And um, I got there and she was kind of apprehensive. She says, you really think I need to leave? And she started worrying about all of her possessions there. And I said, Aunt Mary, I hate to be brutally honest with you, but if you're dead, it really won't matter all the possessions you have. So I said, we need to go. So she said, okay, I'll go, but I want you to get a little bit of rest. I was just running on adrenaline at that point because I had driven 20 hours straight to get to her. So I took about a, you know, I actually didn't really take a nap. I laid down and I was tossing and turning, but got up at 1 o'clock in the morning and I said to her, I said, we need to go. I filled the car up with gas there. 
because there was no gas anywhere uh, below Tampa at that point. So we got in the car and took off at 1 o'clock in the morning. We, at that point, kind of struggled to get back to where we wanted to get to the expressway because I wasn't quite sure how the traffic was going to be even at that time of the morning. But we were able to find our way to Tampa, and I was able to fill up at a gas station there, and then we got on the 75, and believe it or not, the traffic was absolutely light because at that time of the morning, most of the traffic that couldn't get through the Florida line yesterday had stopped at the rest stops and they were still sleeping. So it was like a direct uh, hit right all the way through Florida. We were fine. But <laughs> this is when the fun began. When we got about 20 miles outside of Atlanta, the crux of all the traffic hit, and it took us six hours to get through the Atlanta region. And let me tell you, that was a nightmare because it was stop and go, and we almost got ran into about three times from people trying to switch lanes and not paying attention and traffic stopping immediately. And I was just, at one point, one car, I don't know, it seemed as if God had literally put his hand down and stopped this car because as I was looking in my rearview mirror, I honestly didn't think that I was going to survive without a direct hit. But the car stopped about an inch away, no damage was done, and off we went. So... At that point, I had been, I'm gone going on probably, what, uh, 35 hours with no sleep, so I'm really feeling <laughs> like I need a place to stay. We had stopped at a rest stop, and I made a reservation at a hotel uh, in Chattanooga, but it turned out that when I thought about it, see, my aunt at 99 uh, uses a walker, and she can't do steps very well, so it needed to be on the first floor, and I forgot to ask that. And as I got closer, I said, well, I better inquire, because I'm not going to be able to get her up to the second floor, so... As I called, unfortunately, it was on the second floor, so I didn't. we didn't have a hotel. So the closest hotel we could find was in Athens, Tennessee. And we, we stopped. It was, you know, late at night, and she had one room left. Fortunately, we were able to get that room, and I was able to get a, a good six, seven hours sleep. Uh, we got back into the car in the morning, and we traveled straight to our beautiful home here in Birmingham, Michigan. We'd asked Ed if he ever had second thoughts about driving 1,200 miles over 20 hours into a hurricane that most everyone else was fleeing from. You you do what you think is right, that's all. I mean, (laughs) the poor woman's 99 years old, she's got nobody, and I'm it. So it it really was a (laughs) no-brainer. Well, Aunt Mary stayed with Ed, his wife, and their 19-year-old son for a little bit. Ed said, quote, the teenager will have to sleep on the couch for a few weeks. We'll make do. Family's family. Soon thereafter, Mary wanted to go back home, and what did Ed do? Got back in that car, drove 1,200 miles back to Arcadia, Florida. It's just what Americans do. Ed Condrat's story, Aunt Mary's story, here on Our American Stories. Riders on the storm Into this house we're born
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show. And that's from sports to the arts, from business to history, and your stories, too. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. We'll produce them up and play them right back at you. They're some of our very best. Again, send your stories to ouramericannetwork.org, and we'll produce them and put them up on the air. And now it's time for our On Leadership series, where we hear from some of the best leaders in America, from military leaders to business leaders, coaches, and community and faith leaders in town across this country. And today we hear from Briggs Sorber, one of the original two men from Two Men and a Truck, and his family's business has grown to 7,600 employees and 3,000 trucks and 346 franchises. And Brig travels around the country speaking to the employees of their franchisees to continually cultivate their culture and also to share with them his personal advice about life that he's often learned, well, the hard way. Here's Brig with what he tells them. I'm a geography major from Northern Michigan University. Uh, my goal was urban planning and land use regulation. And I'll talk with the movers because I love doing that. I'll travel around to the different franchises and they shut the trucks down for Marine and get to talk to them. And I tell them, you know, I never took a business class. I took urban planning and land use regulation. That was what my degree was in. And they're like, and I'll ask them, do you, any of you know what that is? And they're like, no, and I, went, I don't either. But I got the degree and I never used it. But the point I tell them that is that I ask them, how many of you guys have gone to college or going to college? It actually is surprising. Almost a third of them have gone or graduated. But I tell the rest of them, this is your college. You know, this is it. And I ask, why do you go to college? Why do you go to college? And they're like, to make more money. I went, how? How do you make more money by going to college? Well, you, you know, you learn a trade and then you go out there and make it happen. I went, all right. Well, this is your college. This is Stickman University, baby. This is it. And I said, so you're going to learn how to manage people, time, and money. And uh, you're going to move forward if you want to because you have to make it happen. Nobody owes you anything. Nobody owes you a damn thing. I tell them that. And I tell them I love them. I tell you some things. I tell them that 68% of our managers in our system started out on the trucks or on the phones. 68%. 42% of our franchisees started out on the trucks or the phones. 42%. Several of them do not have college educations. And several of them are millionaires. Several of them have four-year degree graduates that work for them. You want to know why? Because they treated this like their college. They learned how to relate to customers, how to take care of customers. They learned how to take care and motivate movers and drivers like themselves. Everyone learned something here. I don't care if you have a four-year degree. You come in and you're a franchisee with a four-year degree, you're still going to get your teeth kicked in somewhere. So. I'm looking at you guys, and I'll ask them, you know, I'm just curious. Raise your hand if it was your goal in life to be a mover. It's like, nobody nobody here wanted to be a mover, and you're all sitting here. I go, how sad, you know? How many of you, back when you were kids playing in the yard, you know, cowboys and Indians, cops, robbers, whatever, how many of you raised your hand and went, damn it, it's my turn to be the mover? Nobody. I said, but, you know, that's what careers start out. With Carhartts and Boots, I mean, this is, this is where they start. Where you go from here is totally up to you. 
I was talking with my president four or five years ago. I said, I wonder what our movers and drivers are doing that were with us 10, 15 years ago. I said, get a hold of the marketing department, have them get on social media and, and dig some of these people up. I want to know what they're doing. Tim Hudson, who was a pitcher for the Atlanta Braves, was a mover. We had a Harlem Globetrotter that was a mover. We had a rocket scientist from Nassau that was a mover. And countless cops, doctors, teachers. And so we sent out a film crew to some of these. Can you just tell us, when you started out as a mover, how, did you gain anything from your career from just moving furniture? It's like, oh, hell yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, and they would tell us what they learned about the you know, importance of showing up and being ready and being prepared. And Tim Hudson said, try throwing curveballs after you've been moving furniture all day long. It toughened me up, you know. And uh, so we tell these guys, what are you going to do with, with what you learn here? I hope you stay here. But if you don't, I mean, we have over 500 online classes for our frontline people to take and certifications they can take for free. Start building up those certifications. We have an online resume building kit to show you how to build a resume. If you don't stay here, I want you to be better because of us. But I hope you stay here. But it's up to you because nobody owes you a damn thing. And I tell them, I go, this is tough. I know some of us in this room have it really tough. But your parents don't owe you a damn thing. Your brother, sister, your grandma, your grandpa, nothing. Your teachers, your old coaches, they owe you nothing. State, federal, local government don't owe you a damn thing. Two men in a truck doesn't owe you anything. God owes you nothing. If you feel that somebody owes you something and you didn't get it, what are you now? Oh, you're a victim. You know, you're a victim of what somebody else did to you, you know? And then you're just so angry and frustrated because that person screwed up your life. Get on with it. I mean, I hate to sound like this, but I don't care. I care about what happens to you now. I can't do anything about what happened to you in the past. But you have to take these things here. I said, if you compare to the rest of the world, if you woke up this morning with a roof over your head, and I'm staring at you guys right now, there's nobody starving to death here. As a matter of fact, there's some of you that are eating too much, all right? If you got a flush toilet and running water, if you have somebody that you love or somebody loves you, guess what? You got it better than 95% of the people in the world. You have it better than almost everybody in the world. There are people literally dying to get into this country just to grab your scraps. And I got some of you guys sitting here saying, woe is me. I said, you guys better get over it. I just want to wake them up. And um, I talked to man, a franchise in Philadelphia. And some of these movers were, they came up to me afterwards. And one of them said, I don't know how to speak to you. I said, well, I speak English, so what, what do you got? <laughs> he goes, oh, my God, I needed to hear that. And I go, you get it, don't you? And he goes, yeah, I just, he goes, it's freedom, isn't it? Nobody can hold you back. He goes, no. I said, isn't it funny how we can put ourselves, we feel like, in, like we're in prison, we're stuck in this job, we're stuck in this place, and we're, we're rattling the cage, and we're mad at everybody because we want out. Ever try just pushing on the bars and opening the door and walking out of it? <laughs> Because you have that choice. You can do that. He goes, God, I love that. I went, yeah. And I'll tell the guys, I'll say, there's, I can put 
I don't know any of you guys, but you've landed three buckets I can put you in. I said, the first bucket, you're using this job. You're using it to pay for your education. Maybe you're using it to save money to move somewhere else. You're using it to make yourself better. I said, that's awesome, man. That's the bucket you want to be in. Let us know how you can use us. And I, I, we will show you. Then there's a second bucket. Most of you fall in this bucket. It's like, how the hell did I end up here? I mean, here I am, 28, 29 years old, and I'm a mover of furniture. This sucks. And I said, that's fine. I'll get to you later. I said, then there's the third bucket. And the third bucket is you don't give a shit. You don't care. You're not even listening to me now. And I'll, t- I'll tell you, every time I say that, somebody goes, <laughs> they'll look at me. But it's like, no, you're not even listening to me now. You're not hurting my feelings because I've been around you for my whole life. I've been around all of you my whole life. So I don't take this personally. But let me tell you what will happen to you. You will take one lateral move from job to job to job. This one is just one of the lateral moves that you've already had. And I've known this because I've been doing this job longer than most of you have been alive. Okay, so I know this. But it's sad to me, but I'm going to tell you anyway. I said, you will move from this job to the next one, not to make you better, because it looks like it's easier money or you don't have to work as hard. You will, give me a few years before or after, but in your mid to upper 30s, you're going to wake up and you're going to find out that you don't have the same friends you used to have. Uh, You have family members that you don't even hang out with anymore. It's going to dawn on you that you are going to not have anything for the rest of your life. And that is the saddest part to me. And the only person that you can blame is yourself. Look in the mirror, not out the window at your excuses. And remember that. And only by the grace of God will you ever get an opportunity to pull yourselves out of that hellhole and make something of yourself. I said, that's what's going to happen. And the sad part is you've got more opportunity than I'd say 95% of the world to make something happen for yourself. And you know what? You don't need a college education for it. Work hard. Learn and humble yourself and find out what happens. And what a talk. And we'll continue our On Leadership segment with Brig Sauber, one of the two men in Two Men in a Truck. His story, his leadership talk, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we continue Briggs Sorber's remarkable talk about, well, life, about work, about commitment, and in the end, about so much more. Let's continue with Briggs Sorber, one of the two men in Two Men in a Truck. They're hanging around the wrong people. Man, I rip on my movers for that. I said, our friends, or most of our friends, are only there for the season of our lives. And as we move and evolve, our friends change. And I've got a couple that I've had since I was younger, but those are relationships where my friends are moving in the same positive direction I am, and we're learning and we're giving to those relationships. But there's people that you know we shouldn't hang out with. You know, you're smiling. You got a couple of them right now, don't you? <laughs> so they're there for a season, but after a while, and I tell the movers the same thing. You're the average of your five closest friends that you hang out with. I stole that from somewhere, and I, I thought about it, and it's right. Every now and then, you've got to take a look at it. You've got some friends. 
I'm not talking about a friend that's, a, that's down and you're helping them out. That's different. But you got one that's down all the time. They suck your will to live. You end up in places you shouldn't be or, or you're having conversations that aren't right. I tell these movers, told my kids the same thing. If I'm not hanging out with people that don't honor marriage, uh, they don't honor God, or they're pulling me from those things and making me better, they're gone. Uh, I, don't, I don't value that. I, I've got friends now that I didn't have three or four years ago. That's that evolution. You know, you're never quite there, right? You're always growing and changing. And I tell the movers, and I told my kids the same thing. You have to be the same way. You are built and made in God's image. You are a powerful being. Don't let anybody diminish you or your thoughts. Take a look at these friendships, and you want to feel an empowering feeling is when you look at that one friend and go, you know what? I'm done. I'm choosing not to have you or your negative vibe around me anymore. So when you get these group of people, they start hanging with these people. They start looking at other people moving up. They look at people moving up and they, they don't like them. And if you talk with successful people, there's people that as you start getting places and doing things, it could be like building a strong marriage, you're doing, your kids are in a good place, uh, it could be a professional upgrade or whatever, and you've got friends that aren't happy about that, and they start talking bad about that, get rid of them. I mean, they, and that happens, it's sad. And so these people, are, these younger kids are not feeling well, they start looking at their friends, wow, they got that degree, they got that job. You just got a new car. I know. I was one of them. I was one of those people that would look at my successful friends and go, you'd look for some negative part in their life to, or some tragedy that happened to them. It's like, good, see what happens when, you, when that happens. When I flipped out of that and got away from that, it, it was empowering to me. and It, it was a, like a yoke, a heavy yoke off my shoulders. It was starting, you know what, I'm going to start celebrating the things in my friends' lives and know that, you know, I can get those things too. They might not be as big as that, but I don't want to do that anymore. And I think that was part of my faith walk too. And it's, that's kind of where I'm trying to get some of my movers and some of the people that will listen to me. Don't be that. Don't look at that. And you have a choice of how you're going to look at your life and look at the opportunities. And you start walking in line with godly principles, and pretty soon your walk is lighter. When bad things happen to you, you start thinking, did I bring that on myself? Why is that in my life? And what is there to learn from that? And as you walk through your faith like that, you start looking at these things. And then pretty soon you start realizing, I want these people to feel this way. I'm loved by God. That feels weird when you feel like, I've been hiding from God, and, uh, and I'm, I've gotten screwed by God and screwed by these people. All of a sudden, when you're like, no, God likes a broken guy like me. He actually smiles at me. And I think he smiles more when I start doing other things that are all about myself. I think first we fix ourselves, and then as we get deeper into our faith, we're going like, oh, I can kind of pass that on. And then you get to a point where I just got to this recently. It's like, God has shown me great favor. It doesn't mean my life is perfect. It doesn't mean I, I'm not making mistakes. He, he has never expected us to be perfect. If he did, we wouldn't need Jesus, right? Or we would graduate to a point where we were a Pharisee that no longer needed Jesus. No, we're never there. But the fact that we are walking in stride, 
that we are listening to the words of God. We're helping out other people. I feel if we could see guardian angels, we'd see some beasts that surround us through our lives that keep us from being totally ripped apart. You know, I just want people to know that, that you have, God has given us free will. You're there in, your, in the place that you are. It could be because of somebody else. It could be because of your attitude. It could be the things in life. I'm talking with some of the movers have had it really, really tough. But he also gave us free will to get out of these certain places too. I used this line, I liked it, in, in San Diego on Friday. I go, do you ever live your life like you feel like you're in like first gear and you're pedaling so hard? I go, when you start making the right decisions, it's like you shift a gear and you can breathe. It was wild. When you speak a lot, you can start seeing in people's eyes, they dilate and they have different body language when they get their arms wrapped around an idea. And that's one thing I'm really good at is really bad analogies on trying to get things across. I just, and my employees tell me that. But it was when I told that to these kids, young men, and there's a few young ladies there too, I said, know what it feels like to shift to that second gear when you can go, oh. I'm not talking about not pedaling. You're always pedaling. And they all went, yeah. Like, they wanted that too. Good. I said, well, it's here. But you have to decide to do that. To make the decisions to better yourself that nobody else can control. And I go, your family's not mean. These people are not caring. They got their own issues in their lives. So they can't help you and spoon feed you all the way. You have to do these things on your own. And I think if we can get to a younger generation, I think all of us can hear that. I heard it later in life. I wish I would have heard it earlier, but it's enough to wrap their arms around that they can understand. And I told these kids too, I go, don't listen to the media about what is successful. These clothes that you're supposed to wear and this car you're supposed to drive and this life that you're supposed to live and these Michelob beer commercials where they're all, they're all skinny and they're all athletic and they're all sipping beers in their life, that's bullshit. I go, that doesn't exist. It's not true. That is a, it is a mirage that if you ever were able to get to that Michelob light commercial, you would get there and it would, there's no oasis there. You get there and it's empty. And then the next thing is out in front of you. Start winning where you are right now. Start living your life now and let it unfold and, and go where it's supposed to go. But don't take these mental images of what you're supposed to look like. And what a terrific talk by Briggs Sauber, one of the two men in Two Men in a Truck. And by the way, we also did a remarkable hour-long story about that company and the role he and his mom played, his mom, of all people, in building this remarkable company. And again, it's the largest moving franchise with 346 franchises, 7,600 employees, and 3,000 trucks, and a nearly 96% referral rate, which is really remarkable. Briggs Sarber's talk with his movers, we bring it to you. And again, share your stories with us, leadership stories, any other stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. While you're there, sign up for our free newsletter. We'll send you our best five stories. 
That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Again, we'll send you our best five stories each week. This is Our American Stories. Our American stories, and one of the great stories of the 20th century is The Great Gatsby, a 1925 novel written by F. Scott Fitzgerald that follows a cast of characters living on Long Island in the summer of 1922. Nick Carraway, the novel's narrator, rents a small home on Long Island next door to the lavish mansion of Jay Gatsby, a mysterious multimillionaire who holds extravagant parties but does not participate in them. We start at the end of this classic American novel set in the Roaring Twenties with a dramatic reading by Frank Muller. One of my most vivid memories is of coming back west from prep school and later from college at Christmas time. Those who went farther than Chicago would gather in the old dim Union Station at six o'clock of a December evening with a few Chicago friends, already caught up into their own holiday gaieties to bid them a hasty goodbye. I remember the fur coats of the girls returning from Miss This or That's, and the chatter of frozen breath and the hands waving overhead as we caught sight of old acquaintances, and the matchings of invitations, Are you going to the Ordways, the Hersey's, the Schultzes? And the long green tickets clasped tight in our gloved hands, and last the murky yellow cars of the Chicago, Milwaukee, and St. Paul Railroad looking cheerful as Christmas itself on the tracks beside the gate. When we pulled out into the winter night and the real snow, our snow, began to stretch out beside us and twinkle against the windows and the dim lights of small Wisconsin stations moved by, a sharp, wild brace came suddenly into the air. We drew in deep breaths of it as we walked back from dinner through the cold vestibules, unutterably aware of our identity with this country for one strange hour before we melted indistinguishably into it again. That's my Middle West, not the wheat or the prairies or the lost Swede towns, but the thrilling returning trains of my youth and the street lamps and sleigh bells and the frosty dark and the shadows of holly wreaths thrown by lighted windows on the snow. I am part of that, a little solemn with the feel of those long winters, a little complacent from growing up in the caraway house in a city where dwellings are still called through decades by a family's name. I see now that this has been a story of the West, after all. Tom and Gatsby, Daisy and Jordan and I were all Westerners, and perhaps we possessed some deficiency in common which made us subtly unadaptable to Eastern life. Even when the East excited me most, even when I was most keenly aware of its superiority to the bored, sprawling, swollen towns beyond the Ohio, with their interminable inquisitions which spared only the children and the very old, even then 
It had always for me a quality of distortion. West Egg, especially, still figures in my more fantastic dreams. I see it as a night scene by El Greco, a hundred houses, at once conventional and grotesque, crouching under a sullen, overhanging sky and a lusterless moon. In the foreground, four solemn men in dress suits are walking along the sidewalk with a stretcher, on which lies a drunken woman in a white evening dress. Her hand, which dangles over the side, sparkles cold with jewels. Gravely, the men turn in at a house, the wrong house. But no one knows the woman's name, and no one cares. After Gatsby's death, the East was haunted for me like that, distorted beyond my eyes' power of correction. So when the blue smoke of brittle leaves was in the air, and the wind blew the wet laundry stiff on the line, I decided to come back home. There was one thing to be done before I left, an awkward, unpleasant thing, that perhaps had better have been let alone. But I wanted to leave things in order, and not just trust that obliging and indifferent sea to sweep my refuse away. I saw Jordan Baker and talked over and around what had happened to us together, and what had happened afterward to me, and she lay perfectly still, listening in a big chair. She was dressed to play golf, and I remember thinking she looked like a good illustration. Her chin raised a little jauntily, her hair the color of an autumn leaf, her face the same brown tint as the fingerless glove on her knee. When I had finished, she told me without comment that she was engaged to another man. I doubted that, though there were several she could have married in a nod of her head. But I pretended to be surprised. For just a minute I wondered if I wasn't making a mistake. And I thought it all over again quickly and got up to say goodbye. Nevertheless, you did throw me over, said Jordan suddenly. You threw me over on the telephone. I don't give a damn about you now, but it was a new experience for me, and I felt a little dizzy for a while. We shook hands. Oh, and do you remember, she added, a conversation we had once about driving a car. Why, not exactly. You said a bad driver was only safe until she met another bad driver. Well, I met another bad driver, didn't I? I mean, it was careless of me to make such a wrong guess. I thought you were rather an honest, straightforward person. I thought it was your secret pride. I'm thirty, I said. I'm five years too old to lie to myself and call it honor. She didn't answer. Angry and half in love with her and tremendously sorry, I turned away. One afternoon late in October, I saw Tom Buchanan. He was walking ahead of me along Fifth Avenue in his alert, aggressive way, his hands out a little from his body as if to fight off interference, his head moving sharply here and there, adapting itself to his restless eyes. Just as I slowed up to avoid overtaking him, he stopped and began frowning into the windows of a jewelry store. Suddenly he saw me and walked back, holding out his hand. What's the matter, Nick? Do you object to shaking hands with me? Yes. You know what I think of you. You're crazy, Nick, he said quickly. Crazy as hell. I don't know what's the matter with you. Tom, I inquired. What did you say to Wilson that afternoon? He stared at me without a word, and I knew I had guessed right about those missing hours. I started to turn away, but he took a step after me and grabbed my arm. I told him the truth, he said. He came to the door while we were getting ready to leave, and when I sent down word that we weren't in, he tried to force his way upstairs. He was crazy enough to kill me if I hadn't told him who owned the car. 
His hand was on a revolver in his pocket every minute he was in the house. He broke off defiantly. What if I did tell him? That fellow had it coming to him. He threw dust into your eyes just like he did in Daisy's, but he was a tough one. He ran over Myrtle like you'd run over a dog and never even stopped his car. There was nothing I could say except the one unutterable fact that it wasn't true. And if you think I didn't have my share of suffering... Look here, when I went to give up that flat and saw that damn box of dog biscuits sitting there on the sideboard, I sat down and cried like a baby. By God, it was awful. I couldn't forgive him or like him, but I saw that what he had done was to him entirely justified. It was all very careless and confused. They were careless people, Tom and Daisy. They smashed up things and creatures and then retreated back into their money or their vast carelessness or whatever it was that kept them together and let other people clean up the mess they had made. I shook hands with him. It seemed silly not to, for I felt suddenly as though I were talking to a child. Then he went into the jewelry store to buy a pearl necklace or perhaps only a pair of cuff buttons, rid of my provincial squeamishness forever. Gatsby's house was still empty when I left. The grass on his lawn had grown as long as mine. One of the taxi drivers in the village never took a fare past the entrance gate without stopping for a minute and pointing inside. Perhaps it was he who drove Daisy and Gatsby over to East Egg the night of the accident. And perhaps he had made a story about it all his own. I didn't want to hear it, and I avoided him when I got off the train. I spent my Saturday nights in New York because those gleaming, dazzling parties of his were with me so vividly that I could still hear the music and the laughter faint and incessant from his garden and the cars going up and down his drive. One night I did hear a material car there and saw its lights stop at his front steps, but I didn't investigate. Probably it was some vinyl guest who had been away at the ends of the earth and didn't know that the party was over. On the last night, with my trunk packed and my car sold to the grocer, I went over and looked at that huge, incoherent failure of a house once more. On the white steps, an obscene word scrawled by some boy with a piece of brick stood out clearly in the moonlight, and I erased it, drawing my shoe raspingly along the stone. Then I wandered down to the beach and sprawled out on the sand. Most of the big shore places were closed now, and there were hardly any lights except the shadowy, moving glow of a ferryboat across the sound. And as the moon rose higher, the inessential houses began to melt away, until gradually I became aware of the old island here that flowered once for Dutch sailors' eyes, a fresh, green breast of the new world. Its vanished trees, the trees that had made way for Gatsby's house, had once pandered in whispers to the last and greatest of all human dreams. For a transitory, enchanted moment, man must have held his breath in the presence of this continent. Compelled into an aesthetic contemplation he neither understood nor desired, face to face for the last time in history with something commensurate to his capacity for wonder. And as I sat there, brooding on the old, unknown world, I thought of Gatsby's wonder when he first picked out the green light at the end of Daisy's dock. He had come a long way to this blue lawn, and his dream must have seemed so close that he could hardly fail to grasp it. He did not know that it was already behind him, somewhere back in that vast obscurity beyond the city, where the dark fields of the Republic rolled on under the night. 
Gatsby believed in the green light, the orgiastic future that year by year recedes before us. It eluded us then, but that's no matter. Tomorrow we will run faster, stretch out our arms farther, and one fine morning... So we beat on, boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. And again, that's Frank Muller, his reading of The Great Gadsby, the great 1925 novel by F. Scott Fitzgerald. A great story here on Our American Stories. Mm-hmm. 